Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Policy directors Drew Lippman and Brian McGuire join strategic advisor Mark Begich for a bipartisan political update on the upcoming confirmations of Mike Pompeo and Gina Haspel and the significance of recent March for Our Lives events across the country. They also look ahead at factors that could impact the 2018 midterm and 2020 general elections. Welcome back to the Brownstein Podcast. Today we have our political update with our regulars, Drew Lippman and Brian McGuire. And uh, I'd like to just give a first little quick introduction for both of you. Most people know you from our past uh, podcast. But Drew Lippman, policy director, and previously served as uh, Senator Al Franken's chief of staff, where he led a staff of more than 30 and spearheaded all legislative policy and press initiatives. He brings a long history of working in both the private and public sector and counsels clients in a variety of fields from biotech to financial services. Also, Brian McGuire, policy director, has developed a broad knowledge base after a decade working at the highest levels of the U.S. Senate. He was most recently Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's chief of staff, and prior to that, consulted for National Republican Senatorial Committee during Senator Jeff Flake's 2012 election. Again, both thank you very much for being here. So let's start. We always have to start with the top the president, a lot of changes, and this is kind of our constant theme that we have, new people, new faces. Now we're going to have some confirmation hearings, uh, Gina Haspel and Mike Pompeo, and we also have McMasters, who was replaced by John Bolton. I mean, it's kind of an interesting moment here. What do you think is going to happen, and what do you think those confirmations are going to be looking like? But also with John Bolton, who has had controversial background, what is that going to do to the Trump foreign policy? Maybe I'll, I'll start uh, with you, Brian, and maybe give me a sense of how does Senator McConnell handle these confirmations and then keep policy moving in a sense of the legislative? Yeah, before we get to the question of what substantively changes as a result of these individuals, I think the initial and most important question to answer now is whether they can actually get confirmed in the Senate, where Republicans have one fewer vote than they did when they confirmed Rex Tillerson, whose confirmation, you may recall, was not very easy. Right. Which I have to say, Democrats today might be thinking they rather have him than what they fought against yeah, the last time. Yeah, that's a perennial question yeah, politics. It's an, interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting discussion, I know, with some of my former colleagues I've had. But just to remind people who may be listening, um, Tillerson's confirmation was not by any stretch a done deal, and uh, it was complicated significantly by the fact that Senator Rubio was very resistant to confirming him at the beginning, eventually came around. But without that vote, it was not clear that he was going to be confirmed. So I don't know if... The president consulted with the majority leader before deciding to um, let uh, the secretary of state go and um, the CIA director. But um, it's it's sort of an open question at the moment as to whether or not we can actually confirm these these folks, given um, not only the numbers in the Republican Senate at the moment, 51, and with um, at least one member being um, absent because of sickness. Right. And then you have like two or three that are kind of At least moderate. one who's a, a declared no. Right. Um, no matter what. Th- this this is not in any sense a foregone conclusion. I think it's an underreported story at the moment mm-hmm. that um, th- th- these two, two guys may not actually be able to get through. What do you think, Drew? What are the Democrats? Are they like... I'm gratified to hear that Brian called it an underreported story because I did write an op- 
op-ed on this subject for the Hill <laughs> back in October. Busted. Back in October um, about the jeopardy that I think was is hidden and now becoming apparent for President Trump in another round of confirmation hearings. Because first time around, when it's a friendly Senate, you get it's more new, or less— it's, a, it's a new president. At least from and, your party, yeah, you get yeah. more or less a, a, a free ride. Uh, there's a honeymoon period. That's right. always the case. But what, what shifts now, and part of the reason I think he took so long to get rid of Tillerson, when clearly he was prepared to for a long time, is because it means the confirmation hearing, whoever the nominee would be, in this case Mike Pompeo, would would come before a committee, Senate Foreign Relations, chaired by Senator Bob Corker, who had emerged fairly early as one of the bigger Trump skeptics, but not as of that first round of confirmation hearings. Now, Corker, you know, things have changed. Corker's not running for re-election. Much less reason to be friendly to the Trump administration. And and so you can picture a shifting dynamic now. You also have um, some, I think, restless Democratic potential presidential candidates on these committees maybe more eager to make a splash. There have been changes in committee assignments. Mm-hmm. For example, you could imagine Jeff Sessions, the target of a lot of abuse from the president, apparently, our, our attorney general. If he were to be replaced, those hearings would be in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Recently, that committee added Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, two extremely skilled senators, Yale law grads, potential presidential candidates. You can picture some high, some real fireworks to a greater degree, I think, than we had before. So I could see this playing out in committee after committee where you have senators, not just Democrats, who are more eager to exercise their oversight responsibilities, perhaps more alarmed by Trump's treatment of North Korea, you know, the way he talks about North Korea and want to bear down a lot harder than they did the first time around. Does this create a policy problem, Brian, in the sense of McConnell? I know he's thinking of elections probably now more more so now this at this time and more in the next few months. Does this create a problem or a challenge how he has to manage that in order not to create the perception that Washington is once again not able to get things done during election season when his people are up? It's always a challenge, given the the narrow, um, slim majority we have. I take Drew's point um, that certain Democrats who are thinking about running for president will use this as an opportunity, a platform to promote themselves, but I really don't think that the issue is on the Democratic side. I think Democrats have already demonstrated pretty clearly and forcefully that they're not going to be supporting Republicans in any of these positions, high-profile positions, particularly those who are running for president, so I don't think anybody's holding out any hope that the people that Drew mentioned are going to be supportive of any of these candidates. I think the real issue is the divide within the Republican Party. It's not a very big divide, but there are a couple of key members in the Republican caucus who are very outspoken and very, um, you know, focused on a couple of issues where they think that these nominees are lacking. And so the the real kind of drama, I think, is on the Republican side. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, to the extent that that creates a policy challenge, I don't think it's a new one. I think that we've had a couple of, of members who've always made it clear that they're going to be kind of outspoken and, and, and make an issue of, of certain issues in foreign policy. So that's not a, a challenge that McConnell is unfamiliar with. Um, it's one that he'll navigate very deftly, as usual. And um, again, I think it just sort of remains to be seen whether the votes are there. And what do we think? Uh, how is John Bolton going to be? You know, it, it's it's an interesting view. Uh, some would say he's more in line with um, President Trump's thinking than others might consider it in the past, but it seems like that was a surprise kind of, well, surprise to John Bolton because he actually said that. He said he was surprised when he got the call and told that this opportunity is in front of him. Do you think that's going to shift any 
big decisions in how the president is currently moving within foreign policy, Drew? Or do you think it's just uh, codifying what he's already been doing? Well, I'd note first that both John Bolton and Larry Kudlow, two recent appointments, are not confirmable. So easier, I think, for Trump to make those appointments. The Senate has no say at all. And I've spoken to folks who work on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and I get the impression that when uh, Mike Pompeo, the now secretary-designate, has his confirmation hearings, in some ways he's going to be stuck serving as a proxy for Bolton because they have no way to – they right. can't confirm Bolton. So, so they, they can't pass judgment. They can call him later for hearings, but they can't pass judgment on him. So to the extent that Bolton represents a more bellicose foreign policy, preemptive strike against Iran, preemptive strike against – Uh, North Korea, I think Pompeo is going to have to answer for that, even though he himself may not have said those things. Right. Um, So that creates an even more complicated dynamic for Pompeo. I don't know how it will affect policy choices. One other thing that Kudlow and Bolton have in common is they're popular commentators on Fox News, which we know President Trump watches with some devotion. Mm -hmm. And and they both make strong impressions on Fox News. It may be that Trump is, this is more like casting the reality show than it is ratifying specific policy choices. Let me move to another non-controversial issue, uh, guns. Um, You know, we just saw the, the March for Our Lives demonstration in Washington, depends on who you talk to, several hundred thousand people attended, but not only in Washington, but around the country. You have Governor Rick Scott in Florida signing legislation that six months ago or a year ago probably would never have signed. You have a shift occurring. One of the fundamental issues that people believe is occurring is for the first time, Young people are stepping up at a different level than before. It's usually been these, you know, the Brady Group and others that have always talked about this issue. And on top of that, you have commentary, I think it was by uh, Santorum, who said, well, it seems like they want people to do something for them. And I think they would say yes, because you're an elected official, not necessarily him, but others. Is there a shift occurring on the gun issues? I know NRA has been very quiet, uh, more so than they usually are, because I think they felt some definite pain on this issue. But give me a sense. I mean, let's start with you, Brian, in the Republican Party. It's it's part of the equation, you know, try to get that A rating from NRA. I mean, I had an A rating from NRA. So... What do you think is happening? Is it just a moment in time, or do you think there's an actual flow here that's starting to occur in regards to gun? And I saw a big article, not article, ad in Wall Street Journal on uh, this weekend that was all these companies that were saying, you know, do something, Washington. And then on top of that, you had retailers now saying, we're not going to sell certain types of guns. Is there is there a shift here, or is it just a moment in time? Well, I think it's interesting that while we're all as uh, kind of a country having a conversation about the role of social media and the potential um, overreach of a company like Facebook in terms of disclosing or sharing private data, it's sort of a parallel story. Um, The March for Our Lives is something that's sort of enabled or facilitated by social media. And so I I think that um, social media has created the, you know, a kind of opportunity and ability for for groups and um, advocacy groups and young people to take kind of advantage of an, of a moment like this to to make their to amplify their voices and to to organize in in really effective ways i don't know whether the the 
huge numbers of people who came to Washington are uh, going to be, uh, you know, the, the difference in changing minds. I think I would I would point to something different. I, I would say that, you know, what voters have consistently showed that they don't like are, are ideologues, people who are not um, willing to, to, to think about issues in new and different ways. And I think, you know, to President Trump's credit, he's been willing to, dem- to, to show and to say, um, that he's not necessarily with where you know some of Republican Party members have been you know consistently for decades, for de- or, yeah, yeah. And on trade and immigration and this is something that just kind of in the abstract appeals to a lot of people in the middle a lot of independents and and guns is no different I mean he's 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 publicly said that he wants to get rid of bump stocks he's said that he wants to um, take care of DACA community and he, he doesn't have any takers there but. Um, you know, Marco Rubio has, I think, been very accommodating, and and one of the reasons that Rick Scott has been is a very popular governor in Florida is because he's willing to sort of think about these issues in a fresh way, and and he signed that legislation you referenced. So I think you know that seems to be different, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but whether or not this march is the cause of that it seems to me not Und- quite undeti- right. determined yeah. yet. Yeah, I think. You know these these the young folks who came to Washington, um, you know, could potentially be undermining their their cause by being dismissive or um, contemptible, contemptuous of of Republicans who are willing to to work with them on issues like this, like Rubio, who was attacked very, I think, um, unfairly during the march and and others who are clearly willing to find some kind of a an accommodation or or to, to, to do something about this issue, for which there is no clear, obvious um, solution. Uh, Senator Cornyn has been working very vigorously in trying to find some kind of a legislative fix. And, you know, the, uh, again, a sort of underreported story in the last several days is that Senator Cornyn's fix-nix bill was included in the omnibus as well as $2 billion plus for security um, around high schools. So I think that that was a very significant step in the right direction. It was something that was supported on a strong bipartisan basis, but because it didn't create conflict, it it didn't make a lot of headlines. So I think people are working in earnest to try to find solutions. I think, you know, candidly, you do have a dynamic where you have a lot of red state Democrats who are not terribly eager to be out front on um, anything that's perceived as gun control. And I think the the minority leader, Senator Schumer, is happy to accommodate that political concerns. So um, you have a lot of swirling dynamics here that you well understand. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that one thing that, you know, should be stipulated is that people are earnestly and sincerely trying to find a solution to this this national tragedy. I I will say uh, the Corn and Murphy bill is interesting because uh, it's modeled after a bill I proposed with Senator Graham, uh, because back in the last debate, that was pretty heavy. The idea was you got to take incremental steps, and mental health is a big piece of it. And there's 20 states that do not report their state adjudicated uh, individuals who who should not have uh, a gun because of mental health issues, but they are not in the NIC system. And now under this scenario, we can start to see that for the first time, which is a good step. So I guess I looked to, to Drew. I mean, is this one of those issues? It is complicated in a lot of ways, but in the minds of the young people, it's very simple. In their mind, at least from the conversation that I saw was Congress, just do your job and get this done. Is that possible? And again, I, I you know, Rick Scott last year had a very poor popularity today, very popular, in position now, 
to have a very tight race if he gets in the Senate race, I think, with Senator Nelson in Florida. But does this create a new dynamic for Democrats, or will Democrats overplay this and not do what I think American people are hoping for? Well, first of all, before I, I revert to my identity as a political <laughs> hack, let me say that I thought I thought the young speakers uh, who took the stage at the march were were inspiring and, and all around terrific. Now, reverting to hack status, I think that a couple points. One is where the rubber meets the road is, okay, it's, it, the march took place in March, got elections in November. How does this energy, this passion translate into people turning out to vote? In the last midterm election, 2014, the age 18 to 29 cohort, only 15 percent of those eligible actually showed up to vote. So what you need is if you, if you had 18 to 29-year-olds voting in the same proportion as, say, people over 65 or even people in, 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 in categories middle. in yeah. between in the yeah. middle, you'd have different policies. You'd have different representation right. and you'd have different policies. So I think young people are in a position to make those changes. It has to translate into voting. This is where I think the social media part becomes important Mm -hmm. because in the past you'd have these flare-ups of passion and activity, but no way to channel it on an ongoing day-to-day basis, no way for people to be in touch with each other. Mm -hmm. That seems to be different now. As to the issue, you and Brian talked about um, specific policy solutions. I don't know that any of that would feel really salient to these young people. I, they want something bigger. They don't want to take peop, uh, guns away from people who have them, maybe automatic weapons, but I don't think even that. But I think they're looking for some greater kind of responsiveness. And in some ways, and I, I make this comparison very tentatively, it reminds me a bit of the Tea Party uprising, which was ostensibly about budget deficits, but turned out to not really be about budget deficits. I think it was about for the people who drove it, do our elected officials hear us? Do they recognize us? A larger frustration with government. And I think that's where young people are right now. Like, see us, recognize us, recognize our concerns, the legitimacy of our concerns. Banning bump stocks not going to change that Mm -hmm. at all. Fighting over banning bump stocks isn't going to change that Mm -hmm. at all. They're, They're looking for some larger kind of policy and political recognition as they come of age to vote. That's the most interesting part of this dynamic right now. Do you, do you think for either one of you that you mentioned it, that this has a impact or it's an impact right now, but does it have sustainability into the fall elections? Will it become part of the discussion of campaigns or not? I mean, Florida, probably, but outside of Florida, do we think that it's going to be one of those items that if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're going to have to have a response to this? Or is it one of those that you can kind of shift and move on? It it dovetails with the perception that the key congressional districts in terms of control of the House are suburban districts with highly educated voters that are currently represented by Republicans. Those are the kind of voters that care about this issue. Exactly. And support tighter gun control measures. So I think it probably does carry over. I couldn't quantify the impact precisely, but it seems to fit in. There's a confluence here of factors Mm -hmm. that will make it relevant. Let me ask you about some um, elections that have been occurring. Um, You know, we've seen some primaries in Texas, Illinois. We we see uh, 
a squeaker in Illinois of fifteen hundred votes there with a conservative Democrat and 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 but we see also in Texas some of those primary was that were won by Democrats were more progressive, uh, worked against establishment, didn't have the money necessarily as the others. Are we seeing a trend line? We also saw is there change that the Republicans also see that they, you know, when they see a Texas candidate that's more progressive, is that a, is that something that the Republicans get excited about? You know, last time we talked, we talked about a lot of state house races, but we're starting to see now some congressional primary activity. We're starting to see some shifting and it sure seems, you know, money always plays a big role in politics, but Texas is an example where some of those races it didn't play. I mean, it was the momentum of the movement. Pennsylvania special also. Special, right, is, is another example, right. So any thoughts or comments on that? Is this a precursor of what we're about to see uh, in the um, elections coming up in, in November, Brian? We've discussed in this podcast a number of times the historic metrics that people look to to predict what's going to happen in the, in the elections in November. Um, so, you know, I won't rehash all those, right. but I, just to identify one of them, that I think is is significant. You know, the we've had eight special elections, and um, the average swing in terms of the the districts, the party um, preference has been 17 points toward the Democrats in Pennsylvania. 18. You had the Democrats had a superb candidate there who I think juiced that number a little bit more. Right. So it was plus 22 swing from um, where it was. Um, just historically, right. generically. So, you know, a plus 17 in eight special elections, when you average that out, and that's, it, it, that's very significant. That's significant. And, um, <laughs> you don't hear those well, kind of numbers. Be, you, you know, you'd be lying if you said that that didn't indicate that there's some something building here right. um, in favor of the Democrats. So I also think that... But it still matters. Candidates matter. Well, that's what I was going to say, right. that, you know, in Pennsylvania, the, I think the difference there, that the reason it was 22 and not 17 is because the Democrats chose such a good candidate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, in some of these districts, like Georgia 6, the, there just aren't enough Democrat voters to make up for the generic right. advantage that the Republicans have, which is why um, Karen Handel won that that right. race, in my view. But um, yeah, I think you know th- they need to fo- continue to focus on candidates and not allow some of these candidates who just really aren't suited to those districts to, to, to break through the primary because they're going to limit their their um, their gains if they if they do that uh, if they example, don't do that. An example might be uh, Lipinski, uh, who won those districts in the past seventy eighty percent. This time a little closer, but it's also it was a you know split primary in a way. But does that Drew tell us that that district's changing or that? It just, you know, the candidate that was running against him was very qualified. Well, the district is changing. I I think that's a big part of it. And I think who turns out to vote is Mm -hmm. changing in every district. I mean, I agree completely with Brian's analysis. It's not what what I think Brian is describing in in Democrat overperformance is not a lot of voters changing their mind and becoming Democrats. It's a lot of voters who didn't vote now voting. And... You see that especially among female voters. Mm-hmm. Lipinski is one of maybe four pro-life House Democrats left. Not many. I mean, it's yeah. not even a caucus anymore, right? right. It's just a right. handful of them. So he's behind the times mm-hmm. in terms of uh, in terms of turnout. Uh, 
Democratic primaries. I agree with Brian. Um, candidate quality is vitally important. I don't think the Lipinski race, I think, is a bit of an anomaly. I don't think there's a big moderate versus liberal schism. I think in Virginia and in Pennsylvania, uh, big statewide races, not specials last mm-hmm. year, uh, health care, biggest issue for voters, number one issue for voters. And on that, pretty much all Democrats are in the same place. Right. Affordable Care Act was a good idea. It needs to be strengthened. Some would go further towards single payer or something like that. But that's very different from where you were 10 years ago in terms of a consensus in the party on the number one issue. In Alaska right now, in the Anchorage, there is a, a mayor's election, which will be uh, the first Tuesday in April. But I see these daily sheets that come out. And what's interesting is a third of the voters... It's a mail-in ballot. So it's a third of the voters that are voting right now are people who only have voted two out of four times the last elections, and in some cases, zero out of four times. Mm-hmm. That's very unusual to have that sizable amount in a municipal election, because usually yeah. municipal elections are very hardcore, frequent voters. Uh, that's it. But to see that, almost a little over a third, actually, are these infrequent voters um, I haven't heard much of that in the debate out there, these elections that are current, except kind of mm-hmm. what you just kind of indicated, you know, some people are starting to show up. Is this a new group of people that both Democrats and Republicans, I mean, in Trump's case, when he won, I think there was these infrequent voters that said, finally, there's a candidate that I can support. And they got out there in numbers that were maybe higher than any pollster could even anticipate. And I'm wondering if now the Democrats are seeing some of that or are both parties going to see that now because there's this level of frustration out there. Yeah. I I don't know the answer to that. It depends on who's carrying the party's message. The reason that Trump won a lot of those voters was, as you said, they they liked the message and Mm -hmm. it was not what they'd been hearing from Republicans. However, in a lot of these uh, Great Lakes area states that Trump surprisingly won, Mm -hmm. um, Republicans have been trending better for years. Right, right. So Romney did a little better than McCain. Right. You know, and it just grew from there. So this was not completely anomalous, mm-hmm. but it was significant enough that it enabled him to win in states where Republicans had been trending better forever. I do think, just to get back to something that Trump was saying, or uh, <laughs> Trump, <laughs> Drew was saying a second ago. Separated at Perth. <laughs> um, I, I think if, if the view among Democrat campaign committees and, and people who are deciding who is going to be the candidates in these races is that you're behind the times if if you're um, out of step with Planned Parenthood or NARAL, mm-hmm. then that's another reason to expect that they're not going to maximize their gains. I mean, Republicans do not have a areas. similar litmus right. test if you look at the governor's races where Republicans like Charlie Baker and Hogan and Sandoval and, right. and Nevada and a lot of these Republicans have not um, been predictably um, consistent with the national party. Oh, exactly. 100% on the, GOP. They're yeah. Not. So, um, you know, I'm not in the business of giving Democrats advice, but I, I do think <laughs> that that kind of impulse to um, stamp out any difference within the party among progressives is something that, you know, is is, is a significant reason why they're, they're losing national um, federal elections. Um, and, you, you know, you're not going to have wave elections every cycle. And so right. if you're looking at a long-term kind of uh, strategy for the party. I think mm-hmm. that that's not, not, a, not a great one for them. Let me ask you this question in regards to, you know, uh, primaries in both Republican and Democrat, and I'll end on this with just maybe one last question after this, and that is, you know, down in Texas, the National Party tried to influence the outcome. 
in some Republican primaries, there's been some ability to try to manage who's running. Is is there a role or should the National Party, especially in these days, because things are so um, hot, you might say, politically, that they just stay out and not do anything in the primary and, you know, I know there's always work to recruit candidates. That's mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. thing. But when they financially start contributing or encouraging their main donors to contribute to a certain candidate, is that is that a good thing uh, for Democrats or Republicans to be doing at this point, Drew? I mean, Texas was an example, right? Yeah, Where, Texas was an example, and and the party participation turned out to be pretty un- unpopular. Right. That actually uh, worked. Uh, spawned a backlash, if anything. So I think— Gaming for the national party to game the primary successfully is probably a bad strategic idea. Um, I'm actually okay with the litmus tests, but I think in terms of picking the better candidates, sorting out the better candidates who can run more effectively and speak more successfully to local voters, I don't think the national party is in a great position to do that. Um, Democrats, I think, are benefiting from a proliferation of candidates, first-time candidates yeah, a lot in primaries. Now. They may wind up canceling each other out, wasting a lot of money, but I think letting a thousand flowers bloom at this particular moment is going to work better for the Democratic Party than trying to handpick candidates from D.C. I have a different view on that. I think in the Senate, at least, just to take Alabama, a recent example, in that case, Republicans, I think, were right to not allow a candidate, in that case, Roy Moore, to define the rest of the party. Mm-hmm. And so I think that they had a responsibility, the one that they took up and and um, followed through on, to make sure that voters did not have any confusion about what the party stood for. And in mm-hmm. that case, it meant basically losing a Senate seat. Mm-hmm. So um, that's an extreme example, but that's one where I think it was important for the National Party to step in. They did. But I think in, in a more common example, in 2010 and 2012, Republicans lost five Senate seats that they should have won because they did not get involved in primaries. And we lost seats in Delaware, Nevada, Missouri, because you know, we basically had a laissez-faire attitude about the primaries and let candidates get through in the primary that just could not win in the general. So, so there is a role from your end in the GOP's side. You know, obviously there's a smart way to do it and a dumb way to do it, but I think for the National Party to just sort of sit back and let unelectable candidates get through a primary without trying to do something about that is not something that's worked well for Republicans in the past. So here's my last question for, and again, it's always good to hear your guys' take on what's happening. And I think from a Brownstein uh, organization and the the clients we have, they always are, you know, they they have their issues, but they also want to know the environment they're working in. And this is always helpful to understand it. But um, do you think we're in our second year of the President Trump's administration? You know, you had Schwarzenegger out there already promoting, uh, I think, Kasich, if I remember that right. Do you think President Trump will have a primary opponent? And the reason I ask that is because I think if that's going to happen, it'll probably happen right after these 18 elections. I mean, you see here, bub, you know, mumblings and people talking. But if you're really going to do it, you're probably going to make a decision because it's just organizationally you have to do it. I mean, what's your Brian? What do, what do you think? And then I have a question more on the presidential Democratic side here in a second. But what, what I keep do you wanting think? to answer the Republican question. What's wrong with me? I know. <laughs> Take a swing at that. Take one. a swing, Drew. Go ahead. Well, well, I think sure he'll have a primary opponent. I, I, a name or well, that's the question. Um, I think that I, I wouldn't assume that he's running for reelection. I wouldn't assume he's still president in in three years from now. Um, the Mueller investigation is very fluid. 
and there are all kinds of hazards there potentially for mm-hmm. the president now. It's very hard, harder than it's ever been, I think, maybe since Richard Nixon was president, but that was his second term, I guess. It's very hard to game out what will happen in, in two years. From my point of view, for the Republicans, Brian may have a different point of view. Brian, any? No, I basically agree. I think um, all things being equal, I don't see him being primaried. Um, the, you know, Jeff Lake is not ruled out, if I remember correctly, right. doing something right. like that. But I think he also recognizes that, you know, running as a Republican in a primary against Trump is probably not. Is a tough, tough one. Not, not, it, it would be not, quixotic. Yeah, exactly. So if you kind of leave aside the quixotic, mm-hmm. um, I don't see any viable Republican um, candidate at the moment. Again, all things being equal, who has a has a great shot at, at doing that or who's has the capacity seems, to win seems to be you know laying the groundwork to do it right now and from the democratic side drew is it probably everyone's kind of waiting for the 18 elections to kind of like get done and then come january 1 after they quote meet with their families and over the holidays and do all that kind of show and tell they then suddenly go and i have decided today to blah 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 is that what's going I'm going to go the other way and say no one's waiting. No one's I, waiting. I think a lot of candidates are maneuvering very actively. And you see that, again, we tend to be Congress-focused. I know I am. But you see that if you trace the Senate Democratic committee shuffles, even when Democrats have been in the minority, somehow they've found a lot of ways to change committee assignments right. among, oh, you know, <laughs> uh, among the presidential candidates. So I won't call out any specifically, but you can see it on almost every committee that has national security or far, foreign policy right. responsibilities. Um, They're constantly on the move. And I think one thing that's radically different from past cycles, Hillary Clinton was a very established candidate, so she was not going to be as dependent on social media, say, as as even Trump and Sanders turned out Mm -hmm. to be. But I think, again, of of Cory Booker, who, who I think is wonderful coming to the Senate from being mayor of Newark, not even a statewide representative, just mayor of Newark. We like mayors. Well, we love, we love mayors, but, but I mean, in terms of the size and scope, he came here with 1.4 million Twitter followers, right? And he continues to communicate with them in a very Cory Bookerish voice, right? Which right. Most senators don't do. He always sounds like himself. Yeah, he's when he's never tweeting. changed. He's not Senate. Itis has not come on now. Right. Now, now, Senator Booker may ultimately not run for president, but I think there's this kind of ongoing communication with your potential voting base that did not exist previously. And it is a way of keeping your base tuned in to your behavior and feeling them. I mean, you get response to to these tweets. Are they supportive? Are they critical? Do they ignore it? And, and, And that's a feedback system that didn't exist for candidates before. So it sounds like the presidential race, uh, is already started on the Democratic side. The Republicans are kind of wait and see and assume that Trump does not have any issues that get him out of office. He's running and Yeah, I mean, he's announced he's running. He's got a campaign manager, so he's not conflicted about this. And I think, you know, the absence of any, um, you know, high-profile Republicans challenging him at this point is a sign that, you know, that's... It's on. That's on, yeah. (laughs) Thank you again, Brian Drew. Thank you, as always, for giving us a good update on what's going on in the politics and what's happening. And so thank you all very much for being here. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.